Before we begin our time of listening to the Word of God, um, as one of what you might call the fathers of this flock or family, I want to say my uh, deep, I want to give my deep expression of appreciation to the people that serve us every morning. I was thinking this morning that Nick wasn't up front and Rebecca wasn't up front. And I've been thinking about all the years that Nick has served us so faithfully. And we take it for granted. Carol wishes that she were able to be out and have fellowship with you prior to the service, but we corral her and she's forced to play the piano and so she loses her ability to have fellowship. And we take this stuff for granted. And there are people back in the nursery right now. I don't know who's there. I can almost see one person. Um, And we think of Roy and George and all those that greet us at the front door, hold the doors for us, give us bulletins, those And typically it's, uh, I'm not sure who it is, but I'm sure Cindy has some part in it, who make the coffee and and keep our stomachs rumbling well. Um, Marianne, did you do that this morning? You didn't, all right. Um, And I want you as a congregation to be aware of the people that serve us. I'm up front, everybody listens to me for about 45 minutes, so I get a lot of encouragement and sometimes discouragement. But think of the people who never do get thanked. And Nick and Rebecca, I want to thank you publicly. We miss having you service, but in your first year of marriage, it's tough. And we want you also to be able to have time to devote yourself to your marriage and to one another. And uh, it's a tradition we have as a church that it says in the Bible that when uh, in the first year of marriage, the, the young Israelites should not have to go to war, but should be free to stay home and please their wives. I don't know if you knew the Bible said that, (laughs) but uh, it's a principle we try to follow. It doesn't mean that uh, you don't do work in the church, but it does mean that we try to protect you from being uh, double or triple minded. So after the service and each week as you come in, would you thank those that service as a flock? Thank them for their work in our behalf. Thank the choir. Thank the ushers. Thank the musicians. Thank Stephen who prepares our worship and David who leads us. Don't take them for granted. Now, uh, let us turn for maybe the last time to Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. We have spent a number of weeks learning that those who despise the language of Scripture and specifically the language that is marked with the male gender, father, brother, son, Adam in the Old Testament, are turning from the true faith that God has given us in His Word. And so we have seen that we are, as believers in Jesus Christ, adopted by God as his sons. And that being adopted, we have the Holy Spirit living within us. And how do we know that the Holy Spirit is living within us? Because the Holy Spirit makes us able to speak a new language to God, calling him Abba, Father. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Over the course of the last seven or eight years, I've been convinced that the fatherhood of God is one of the great needs for uh, biblical study today. And there's a book written by a man named Candlish uh, called The Fatherhood of God, and I've been plowing my way through it. And it's a difficult read. Um, It's an extended meditation on this declaration that the spirit of his son is sent forth into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And this is a wonderful and a deep truth. If you think of it, Consider that those of us who believe in Jesus Christ have been adopted by God and being God's sons, 
the spirit of God's son, Jesus Christ, cries out in our behalf, Abba, Father. We read the same truth reiterated in Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And so when we are born again by the Spirit of God, we become brothers of Jesus Christ and sons of his Father, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. And so we witness to and confess our new family relationship, our new sonship, by crying out, Abba, Father. When Jesus commanded his disciples to pray like this, he said, Our Father who art in heaven, he was not extending this privilege to the world. Let me say this again. When Jesus said to us, pray like this, our Father, he was not extending this privilege to the world. Nor was he extending this privilege even to all the Jewish people who came out to listen to his teaching and his preaching. No, he was only extending this privilege to his disciples, to those who believed on and who followed him. And when he taught them to pray to God, addressing God as our Father, he was not setting himself outside of the prayer, but was himself joining with them in their prayer. Now, this is something I'd never thought of, but consider what I've just said. Jesus was not looking at them and saying, all of you together pray, our Father who art in heaven. But there was solidarity between Jesus and his disciples when he taught them to pray, our Father. He was directing them to come to God with him. To come to his Father riding, as it were, on his coattails. To come trusting that those souls that the Son brought to the Father would be blessed with the same relationship to the Father that He, Jesus Christ, had had from all eternity. Full sonship. And you may ask, can this really be true? That we who believe in the Lord Jesus have the same relationship with Almighty God that His Son has. Can it really be true that through adoption, we have come into not a partial or inferior sonship, but the same quality and the same kind of sonship that Jesus Christ possesses? Can there really be anything approximating similarity, let alone sameness, in God's fatherhood towards his only begotten son and his fatherhood toward us. And so as we study our sonship and the fatherhood of God, I want us to see that there are two errors that must be avoided in this matter of the fatherhood of God. Two errors that must be avoided in this matter of the fatherhood of God. First, we must avoid the error of trivializing and making worthless this fatherhood. In other words, we must avoid the error of thinking and speaking of God's fatherhood as if all men possess it. They do not. And second, we must avoid the error of thinking and speaking of God's fatherhood as if believers in Jesus Christ possess it in only a partial or inferior way. That we are not really sons, and He is our Father in the full sense of the word, but rather that we possess a sort of probationary sonship, that he's more our foster father than our real father, and that at any moment he might turn us out and be done with us, that we must always be on guard lest our sin or weakness cause him to change his mind concerning us. Two errors we must avoid. We must avoid thinking and speaking of God's fatherhood as if all men possess it. And we must, second, avoid thinking and speaking of God's fatherhood as if believers only possess it in a probationary, a partial, or temporary way. 
First then, the error of thinking and speaking of God's fatherhood as if all men possess it. Now, you know, those of you who have been here for a while, that uh, I refuse to give up using the word men to refer to women also. And so I'm using it, including both men and women here, which is the way that it's used in the Greek and Hebrew of Scripture. The error then first of thinking and speaking of God's fatherhood as if all men possess it. The only fatherhood to be claimed by unbelievers is the fatherhood that may be attributed to God as creator. And this is a fatherhood that is devoid of the love and tender care that God promises those who believe in his son, Jesus Christ. It is this bare fatherhood as creator that the Apostle Paul acknowledges among the Areopagus in ancient Greece, agreeing with one of their poets. He's preaching to them there. And it says in Acts 17 that Paul preached, saying, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And this is the sense of fatherhood that he's referring to here. He himself, God, gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. And so here we see that the Athenians recognized what we might call the cosmic fatherhood of God. It's a fatherhood that is grand and glorious, that, that has the creator and the provider of all of nature in it, that it is in him that we live and move and have our being. And therefore, the Greek poets referred to ourselves, everyone who's ever existed, as what? As his children. How true it is that without Christ Jesus, those who speak of being God's children and of having God as their father are only speaking of the bare minimal aspect of fatherhood, that God made them, and hence that they have come from him, that they have their origin in him. But when it comes to full fatherhood, to the fatherhood that preserves and protects and provides for and disciplines and loves a son... God is such a father only to those who are in union with his eternally begotten son, Jesus Christ. Only those adopted by God as his sons may call him father. Now, there are many passages of scripture that make this clear. First, John 1, verses 12 and 13. We read, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Not just anyone, but only those who believe on Jesus Christ and receive him in their hearts are given the right as children of God to call God their Father. Why? Because they're the only ones who have been born again by the Spirit of God. It is explicitly said here that they are not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. It's not a natural, it's not a human birth that is being spoken of here. The generation of which man is capable of himself. No, rather, it is a supernatural birth that only God himself can give to us through the power of his Holy Spirit. And so those who have only been born into the family of man may never call God Father as Jesus did. Since they have only been born of the womb of a woman, they are only the children of man. But those who have been born of a woman and also born a second time, reborn of God, born again of the Spirit of God, these are the children of God. And they have all the rights and privileges thereof. The first one being the privilege of coming into God's presence, crying, Abba, Father. Only those adopted by God may call him Abba, Father. Second, 1 John 
chapter 2, verses 28 to chapter 3, verse 1. Again, we see scripture that teaches that it is only those adopted by God who may call him father. There we read, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone else who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Now here note that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him, born of God. As children of God, we have received the love of God the Father, but the world doesn't recognize our Heavenly Father, and so it doesn't recognize us. The world does not know God, and so it cannot know His children. Only those adopted by God know God and know Him as Father. Then third, another example in Ephesians 1, 3-7, of the exclusivity of this naming of God as Abba Father. There we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And so we see here that being adopted isn't a haphazard thing. It doesn't come to us by pure luck or blind fate. Rather, it is something that has been in the work since when? Since before the foundation of the world. God chose each one of His children by name, and He predestined us to adoption as His sons through Jesus Christ. He determined that we would be saved, that we would be blessed with every spiritual blessing, that we would be holy and blameless. His love was set on us to the end that we would be taken into His family, younger brothers to our elder brother, His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, this only happened out of the kind intention of His will, and I hope you understand what's being said there. It didn't happen because you pulled and, and lurched and, and crawled and climbed and, and somehow managed to get His notice. It didn't happen because after He did everything else, He left a little bit for you to do, and then He noticed what you did. It happened only because, and, and, and every time I think of this, I think of... Uh, uh, I think of the expression, just because. Every time I think, why did God choose to reveal himself and his son to me? I can't come up with a reason. Except the reason, which is no reason. Which is just because. Out of the kindness of his will. There's absolutely nothing in myself that commends me to him. As a matter of fact, there's an infinite number of things that commend me to his judgment. But if we look at ourselves and we see that God has placed in us the cry of the Holy Spirit, Abba, Father, and we meditate on that, we think, well, how did that happen? And why did that happen? And then we read this text. We're told, we're answered, we have the key. And the key is, it is purely what? It is purely His free bestowing on us in the Beloved. It is the riches of His grace. He determined that we would be saved, that we would be blessed with every spiritual blessing, that we would be holy and blameless. His love was set on us to the end that we would be taken into His family, younger brothers, to our elder brother, His Son, Jesus Christ. 
Only out of the kind intention of His will did this happen. And only for the praise of His glory. Not in any way to our credit. All this has been freely bestowed on the children of the Heavenly Father through His beloved Son. Through His beloved we have been redeemed. Through His blood we have been forgiven for our sins. And so how rich is this grace? How very rich. And made richer, how? And see, this is the thing that we don't like. What makes this richer is the fact that as we look across the great mass of humanity all through history, that we are a little flock. It's made greater because the priceless treasure of coming to God, Abba Father, is something that the vast majority of people who have ever lived have never been able to say. It has never been true of them. God's Word is a hammer and it's a rock. God is not interested in pleasing us as we would be pleased. But He is interested in pleasing us according to the perfections of His character. God is true, though all men are liars. And so if we want to meditate on the precious gift we have been given, we must see how unique and how rare and how exceptional that gift is. Again, this hard truth. Only those adopted by God may call Him Father. In Luke chapter 12, we read that someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Sounds like our families, doesn't it? But he, Jesus, said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. This ought to be put on the Statue of Liberty, shouldn't it? But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? Now, what's my point? Well, note how when Jesus deals with the crowd, responding to their question concerning money and a family inheritance, he does not speak to them of their heavenly Father. But instead, he speaks to them of Almighty God, the judge of all the earth, who decrees concerning specific souls, you fool, this very night, your life, your soul, excuse me, is required of you. What's interesting is what happens next. Look down with me. If you don't have your Bibles open, open them up, please, to Luke chapter 12. We read verses 13 to 20, but then look at what happens next. Next, Jesus turns from the crowd. Now, mind you, this is a Jewish crowd. Mind you, this is what many would call a crowd of covenant people. He turns from the crowd where? To his disciples. And what he had to say to his disciples was a very different thing from what he answered the crowd. Note how this passage begins with the statement he said to his disciples. He said, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. For they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn. And yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? 
If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink. And do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. I love the way that ends. <laughs> um, it's lilting. It's almost forgetful. It's almost trivial. It's, it's soft. It's um, dismissive. Here he's been dealing with all the important things in life, right? Pension funds. <clears throat> Serious men give attention to pension funds. Did the Apostle Paul have a pension fund? No, the Apostle Paul was not a serious man, was he? <laughs> now, this is kind of an in-joke. Ask me about it afterwards. But, you know, he's been dealing with all these really heavy, heavy things, right? Pension funds and interstate highways and food and clothing and houses and air conditioning units and heat exchange units and businesses and he says all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek but your father knows that you need these things your father knows that you need these things or a father a human father might be so vulgar as to put it this way what do you take me for an idiot I know what you need. Stop worrying. Your father knows you need these things, but seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Don't be afraid, little father, for your father's chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? So toward those who don't believe, and toward those who are striving to protect their rightful inheritance, their wealth, all the serious things of life. Jesus speaks harshly, with severity. Come on, people. Look at it. Jesus is not a patsy. Jesus speaks harshly and with severity to them. What does he do? He calls them what? By extension, he calls them fools. This is Jesus' posture and the posture of his father towards those who are headed for hell. He gives them none of the family privileges and he refers to their maker, to their creator, and to their judge simply as God. And then when he turns to his disciples, he's all tenderness and promise. He's encouraging those who believe in him not to spend a minute worrying about their wealth and the things the world considers very serious, but to put their trust in him and to seek His kingdom and His righteousness. To have their undivided attention on His Father and theirs. The same God who to the unbeliever is judge of the whole earth, is provider, is seamstress, is tailor, is defender to His little flock. He is always watchful as their Father. Everything they need will come from His hand, just in time. Jesus simply commands them not to fear, trusting completely in His Father's loving care. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And may I point out here that as we see in the distinction between the name Jesus uses to refer to God with the two groups, God with the first group, but Father with the second, so also... We see the same distinction in the name that Jesus gives to the vast majority of those who live in the world and to those who belong to his heavenly Father. 
Look back with me again at Luke 12, 22 to 32. In verse 30, he says, for all these things, what? The nations of the world eagerly seek. And then how does he refer to those who know God as Father? He refers to them as what? As his little flock. His little flock. We have the nations of the world, and then we have the the little flock. Only those adopted by God may call Him Father. The whole world sees God's fatherhood in only a very limited way. The way that the Greek poets spoke of God as the one in whom all things have their origin and before whose judgment seat all men will stand. They speak of God as they would speak of a first cause. As an author or an architect as a maker. But to his adopted children, God gives infinitely more of his fatherhood. We must avoid first thinking and speaking of God's fatherhood as if all men possess it. But we also must avoid second, thinking and speaking of God's fatherhood as if believers only possess it in a probationary, a partial or a temporary or a limited way. What is the nature of our sonship and how is it proven to us? If we are children of the Heavenly Father, we know because we melt in tears for our sin. Wicked men will melt in tears for the consequences of their sin. But we go far beyond that. It's not just the consequences of our sin that break our hearts, but it is knowing that in us dwells this principle of sin and death that strives against our Heavenly Father. This grieves true believers. This grieves the true children of God. Are you a child of God? Do you grieve that you even have in you a principle, a law of sin and death? Or do you just grieve because of the consequences of that principle within you? If we are children of the Heavenly Father, we are filled with sympathy towards God. And we are zealous in defense of His reputation? Do you grieve? Does it vex your soul as it vex the soul of the righteous man Lot as you live in another Sodom and Gomorrah? Are you grieved when you hear people take the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in vain? I'm not asking whether you're prissy. I'm asking whether it, whether it hurts your heart. Those who belong to God and know Him as Father are grieved that disrespect and dishonor and the blasphemy and the sacrilege and the impurity and the pride of life that consumes His creation. Why? Because those who belong to Him as a Father love Him. When they had finished breakfast after our Lord rose again, Jesus turned to Simon Peter who had denied Him. And He said, Simon, son of John, do you love Me more than these? And Peter said to him, what? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you love him? I didn't ask whether you have ever denied him. (laughs) I mean, come on, get the context. Simon Peter just got done being intimidated by by a little girl. Remember it? Jesus was being tried and he was out in the courtyard. Three times he was asked, weren't you hanging out with that dude? And boy, he just had, he was filled with righteous ignorance. By God, no, I told you I'm not. And Jesus had said he'd do it. And he'd said, I'd rather die than deny you just a little while prior to that. And then he gets intimidated by this little girl. And it says he cursed in denying his Lord. So I'm not asking whether you've denied the Lord. I know you have, as I have. My question isn't whether you've denied Him. My question is the question of our Lord. Do you love Jesus? You say, but I've denied Him. I say, but Peter denied Him. You say, yeah, but I did it worse. 
I haven't done it three or four or ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty. I have been denying him year after year. Well, I don't even know whether my children would recognize the sonship of God within my heart, my soul. I didn't ask if you denied him. I asked whether you love him. Another proof of our true love for the Lord is that we love his children. This is one of the most precious to me. Because I happened to be born into a family where my parents had something very unusual, I think. They had very generous spirits. And wherever we went, immediately they obviously fell in love with the people of God and devoted themselves to them. And I have seen as I've gotten older that this is a rare thing. And so maybe you don't have the kind of heart that is immediately friends with every person when you walk into a church. But I'm not asking you about that. That's a special gift. But I'm asking, when you do walk among Christians and you hear them confessing their sins, do you despise it or do you love it? When you see a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who admits that he is completely foolish and faithless. Is that an opportunity to slip the knife into his ribs? Or is that an opportunity to gather him in your arms and hug him and love him and say, I recognize the family resemblance. You have love for the children of God. 1 John 5.1 Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. And listen, those of you who are married, I hate to tell you this, <laughs> uh, but that includes that dirty dog sitting next to you who is your husband. It would be perverse if we could love strangers in a church, a house church in China, the minute we walked in and couldn't love the man that God has given to us as our husband or the woman that he's given to us as our wife, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Come on. Come on. Come on. Can I have an amen? Okay. Come on, Jeff. <laughs> Don't worry, they love each other. I would, never, I would never pick on anybody who didn't. All right. Love for his children, including our husbands and our wives, and I might add our parents and our roommates. We know that we're adopted children of God because as we honor God, it proves our family identity. Our resemblance to him proves our family identity. Colossians 3.10, we have put on the new self as being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. We know that we are children of God because our hearts do cry out, Abba, Father. We know that we're children of God because we desire to be near our Heavenly Father. Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works." We know that we are children of God. Why? Because we desire to be near our Heavenly Father. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. We know that we belong to God and are His adopted children because we are being taught by Him. In Isaiah 48:17, thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way that you should go. Psalm 71, 17, O God, you have taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. We know that we are children of God adopted by our Heavenly Father because of the benefits and blessings of our sonship. 
If God is our Father, He holds us in deep affection. So that Christ, it says in Ephesians 3.17, may dwell in your hearts through faith, and you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Isaiah 46, verse 4, even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. What a precious promise to those of you who are facing death. In Psalm 105, 14, God says this, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Verse 15, I'm sorry. Matthew 18, 20, Where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am also. If God is our Father, He would be filled with sympathy for us. In Zechariah 2, verse 8, He says, He who touches you touches the apple of my eye. If God is our Father, He will notice even the smallest good in us. In Psalm 38, verse 9, David writes, Lord, all my desire is before You, and my sighing is not hidden from You. If God is our Father, He will correct us. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, or loathe His reproof, for whom the Lord loves He reproves even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. If God is our father, he will give us mercy along with our afflictions. Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins or rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, So great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. And then one of my most loved verses in Scripture. Like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear Him. For He knows our frame that we are made of dust. If God is our Father, Satan won't be able to steal us. Romans 16.20 gives us this promise, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If God is our Father, He will not allow real evil to befall us. Psalm 91.9 and 10, For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. If God is our Father, He allows us into our presence and we may come boldly. Ask and it shall be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone or if he asks for a fish he won't give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? If God is our Father, He will give us everything which is good for us. Psalm 34.10 The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. In Matthew 11, we read of this prayer of our Lord. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If God is our Father, every single promise of Scripture is yours. Every single one. These are your promises. Now, let me close with the obvious question. Is God your Father? I'm not asking the question, when you got up this morning, did you feel like God was your father? I'm not asking the question, have you denied God is your father? I'm not asking the question, do you fear that God isn't your father? I'm asking the question, is God your father? I'm asking the question, have you been born again? I'm asking the question, have you purified yourselves? I'm asking the question, do you believe in the Son? Don't tell me that there are many paths and you've chosen a different one. The road less traveled. But actually, if it's the rejection of Jesus Christ, it's the road more traveled. Don't tell me that you believe that there are many paths to God. God, Almighty, in His holiness, has sent His Son and has decreed that that Son is the only path to His presence. He is the one that made us with immortal souls, and it is to Him that our souls will return. And Jesus has been very clear in showing that when those souls return to God, and they have not known the fatherhood of God, they have not known the brotherhood of Christ, they have not known the adopted sonship, that those souls will go to hell, will come under His judgment, and be eternally separated from Him. Jesus describes it as going to the place where the worm never dies and the flame never goes out. And so this is an extremely important thing. This is not something where uh, we are browbeaten and threatened with hell so that we'll flee to the cross, but this is something where Jesus gives us every good gift that we could desire. Jesus takes all the serious things of life like pension funds and cars and clothes and food and shelter and even love and protection. And he says, Fear not, little flock, my heavenly Father is delighted to give you these good things. It's not as if we're cringing under a tyrant. He said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And yet he also has said, that the nations of the earth go after these things. But fear not, little flock, for it is my Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. And if He's going to give us the kingdom of God, don't you think He's going to take care of your cars and your house and your air compressors and, and, and your hair and your fingernails? And all these things that we have to be busy about consuming our wealth with. And so I ask you again, I say, is, is, is God your Father? And I ask, have you come to Jesus Christ? He says, come. He says, those who come to Him, He'll never cast out. And so what's keeping you? Why not come to Him? Can you not take him at his word? Must you really provide for your own finances? Must you really build your own house on the sand? Must you really demand that everyone recognize the truth of your statement that all Christians are hypocrites? Everyone but you, right? You know, it's said that the thief thinks everyone steals. What is it about Jesus that you cannot love? Is it because he climbed up onto the cross and was obedient to death, even the death on that cross? Was it because he poured out his blood for you? 
Is that something that you can't love? Was it because he was not willing to accept back those who were unfaithful to him? Did he not go to Peter and say, Peter, do you love me? After Peter had denied him three times and denied him, knowing full well that Jesus had warned him he would do that. Is this someone that you cannot love? What is there that isn't lovely about Jesus Christ? Is he not fat enough for you? Should he look like Buddha? You want him to have more of a prosperous air? Is that what your God is? Should he be stronger, like the Muslims that said to me over in London in Hyde Park, Your God died on a cross! Is that the kind of God you want? Then you're living in the right nation. Your God is the United States. What is there that isn't lovely about Jesus Christ? What is there to hate about him? You know, there's only one thing to hate about Jesus, and that is that Jesus demands that those who come to him must humble themselves. And let me tell you, (laughs) that's worth hating. Just that little requirement that we fall on our knees before him and that we admit that we are not God and that he is. But what a God. A God in the Sistine Chapel, the hand reaching out of heaven. None of these groveling creatures, everybody trying somehow to get a vision of glory, but God's hand coming out of heaven, reaching down to lift us up and set us on a high rock. Is this a God you cannot love? Yes, He'll demand your life. He will demand that when you follow Him, you take up your cross. He will demand purity of heart. He will demand that He has the only place in your heart. There's room for no other. He will demand that He even take the place of your wife and your husband and your mother and your father and your brother and your sister and your best friend. He will demand that you hate them so that you may love Him better. But what is there that isn't lovely about Him? Yes, I'm not lovely. I know that. He has chosen for a reason that is beyond us that His glory is preached through sinful men. But what is there about Him that isn't lovely? Why would we not come to Him? He says, those who come to Him, He will never cast out. do a song this morning, and as you sit and listen to the words, and they may be projected up here as well, I want you to consider what Tim has preached about this morning and whether or not you can call God your Father, whether you say Abba, Father, to God, and consider the words of the song. And then after we're done singing, I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you have not called God your Father, if you have not in the past submitted to Him and humbled yourself to Him, and you know that you should, I implore you today, believe. Believe.